Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Bolthouse Farms has been around for more than a hundred years, literally more than a century. But since it split off from Campbell, it's sort of been able to go its own way and do some interesting things R&D-wise. Let's bring in the CEO now, Jeff Dunn, to give us a rundown on what exactly Bolthouse Farms is planning for the future. Jeff, great to have you. We all know you for your carrots and for all of those wonderful juices and so on. But you have big plans for the plant-based economy. Talk to us about those plans. Well, hey, Bonnie, thanks for having me. So the plant-based economy to us is, is really twofold. One, at the consumer level, it's the shift that's already happening towards a more flexitarian diet. And that flexitarian diet is really grounded against people looking to eat less animal proteins and, and just get more plants and into their diet because it's clear that's a, a great health outcome for people. And the second piece is that, you know, the produce industry, we've been in carrots for a long time, and plant-based, which is more technology-driven, are kind of merging into uh, a a different kind of economy. And I think that goes to regenerative agriculture. So when you talk about plant-based economy, it goes to consumer products, but it also goes to a more sustainable future. And I think those two things are what's really driving it across the globe. Jeff, can you give us some examples of what you mean by plant-based? So, you know, I, th- yeah. I think we know some of the very obvious ones, but what are, what are some of the new ones you're developing? Yeah, so for Bolt House, we're starting to leverage off, you know, our carrot heritage. So we're just in the process of launching a whole new platform called Wonder Roots. Uh, and Wonder Roots is really about meat and, and carb swaps, we call them, replacements. So... Uh, three different product lines we're launching. First is kind of carrot fettuccine, which is, you know, carrots sliced into fettuccine noodles. You've seen things like, you know, cauliflower rice and squash noodles. These we think, and they're meal kits. So this goes to people homing. You know, what's happened post-COVID is people spending a lot more time at home and cooking. So a fettuccine kit, a rice uh, side kit, same thing, flavored rice, but carrot-based, uh, not rice-based. And then probably the one that's most exciting, a carrot hot dog. So carrot hot dogs is directly going at, uh, you know, regular hot dogs. It's a whole carrot that's been brined and seasoned, and you cook it just like a hot dog. And that that's our probably big spring introduction coming up. That one wow. is a lot of fun. That's amazing. Now, do you need preservatives and things in there? What else is in there? Nope. Nope, nothing. What we do is we take whole carrots and we shave them down with like just a hot dog. And we brine them, you know, brining, just put it in a kind of liquid and spice for a while. And then we uh, use pressure, high pressure pasteurization to, you know, make it, shel- to make it stable, right? So it has some shelf life. But there's no preservatives. It's a fresh product. And we ship it out. And the thing about it is you put it on a grill, you put it in a pan, cook it just like a hot dog, and it bites like a hot dog. It's, it's really funny. Uh, one of our R&D guys came up with this crazy idea of meat swaps, and he said, I think we can make carrots replace whole series of meat ideas. And he started with a hot dog. Uh, and, you know, we have a, a big plans across this because the consumer's telling us they want flexitarian options. You know, they, they want to eat less meat. 
but they don't want to give up the fun and, and the, the familiarity of things like hot dogs and hamburgers, which is really the, the strength of um, Beyond and Impossible have really played into that trend. Yeah, I mean, with this, I see baseball stadiums and games becoming more healthy all over the country. Can you imagine? So- uh, I'm, I'm a big Dodger fan right now. we got a big game tonight, and you know we're going to launch in the spring, and we might just show up at a bunch of baseball games next year when the, you know, the season opens. It's a great opportunity to expose people to this new product. Well, that's for sure. I'll, I'll take my commission now. Thank you. Is, uh, is, is immigration policy difficult for you right now? The Trump administration obviously have an impact on farm labor shortages has it been resolved what have you done it's it's you know in california it's very difficult it's less difficult for us because we're pretty highly automated we're much less labor dependent than a lot of other commodities with you know carrot is you know we use a lot of machines and less people but across the board with all of our farming partners uh very very difficult immigration uh issue combined with covid so COVID, you know, difficult enough in a manufacturing environment. We've done a lot of work to keep our, our employees safe. But think about a field environment where people are field harvesting. It, you know, you can spread them out, uh, but those people live in shared housing, and it's just really, really difficult. Yeah, it's, um, it's hard. It's very, very, very hard. What, what are your plans for staffing up should it become, you know, uh, I mean, say, say the current administration continues on. Do you then sort of have to, you know, look at alternatives? Do you have two base cases in mind for post-election? Yeah, we actually do because we actually think it's such a binary choice, whatever your politics are. They're different directions, pretty clear. Yeah. Uh, and, and you have to be prepared for either one. Now, now, either way, we think automation and technology, which is really part of, you know, we brought this business back from Campbell's a, a year ago, just over a year ago. And so one of the things that, you know, makes uh, plant-based so interesting is obviously you're growing things in the ground. And our ability to have the right kind of rotations, regenerative agriculture is a term you'll hear a lot over the next 10 years. And it's using really agriculture to sequester uh, carbon back into the soil. And, and that is a function of, you know, your farming kind of practices and, you know, no-till farming, and a whole series of things. And so what I actually think farming is going through a, a massive change right now, it's going to become less people, you know, and, and kind of raw labor dependent and much more about machine learning and ultimately robots. You know, it's, it's all about automation because to feed the growing population globally, you know, farming has to evolve and really adopt kind of modern technology. And that's happening at a very aggressive rate. Jeff, a fascinating conversation and a very, very good luck to you for these new products. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a great time to be launching and I suppose also a difficult time with uh, consumers under a little bit of pressure. So do come back and tell us how it all goes. Bolt House Farms CEO Jeff Dunn there. And uh, my takeaway from that was I can't wait to taste this, uh, this hot carrot substitute for hot dog. This is Bloomberg. Well, it is time for Bloomberg Opinion, and we have a host of wonderful opinion columnists, none more so than Brian Chapada, who's our debt columnist here at Bloomberg Opinion. And Brian writes about debt markets, which are always fascinating, but the column I want to look at today is about the Goldman clawbacks. Yes, you heard that right. Those two words you don't very often hear in the same sentence. There were massive clawbacks from some very top-level Goldman executives announced just this week and Brian Chapada is here to tell us exactly why. It has to do with 1MDB and if you don't know, Brian, would you give us a little synopsis of what the 1MDB scandal was? 
Yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty bad by even by Wall Street standards. Uh, Goldman effectively pleaded guilty to having a role in this scheme that diverted billions of dollars that were supposed to go to economic development in Malaysia into a whole variety of of, of frivolous things in a lot of ways, high-end art, real estate, a super yacht, even the movie Wolf of Wall Street. So it was a bad look, and it was uh, Goldman's first guilty plea uh, ever through the through its small Malaysian unit. Um, and so what's interesting, I think, is the fact that actually some of the top executives were held accountable to the tune of $174 million. And the reason that's so fascinating is because you really don't see this ever. Usually the bank pays a fine and the top executives may or may not, you know, issue a mea culpa, but they don't have, you know, monetary penalties. They certainly don't go to jail. In this case, at least what, a dozen top uh, current and former executives, including CEO David Solomon and the previous CEO Lloyd Blankfein, have to pay up to the tune of what, Brian? Exactly. Um, I mean, when the news first came out, there was this uh, there was this thing called the Deferred Prosecution Agreement, um, which basically was a win for Goldman Sachs, because if they had been convicted, they would have risked losing some institutional clients. Um, So they really haven't lost any business from this. But the question is going to be, how do you save face? How do you show to shareholders that we are keeping some accountability here? And that ultimately came in the form of and dinging David Solomon, like blank, blank fine, as you said, um, of millions of dollars. Half of the total of the $174 million is going to be from three people who were directly implicated in the actual 1MDV uh, scheme. But, um, but yeah, actually going after Solomon and, and Blankstein was was pretty significant. Right, because David Solomon continues to lead Goldman Sachs. His salary is, what, about $27 million? So presumably if half of the 174 is spread out between him and a few more, that that's going to hurt. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's going to be interesting going forward, um, because you know, one of my colleagues uh, over in London uh, wrote this week about the Morgan Stanley departures um, because they they had issues with uh, WhatsApp, I think. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see because there has been this whole question about how much oversight bankers can have um, during this work-from-home era over the past several months. If there is more uh, wrongdoing that comes out, is this going to set a precedent that you have to, that you have to keep the, the top level accountable? Um, and if so, what does that mean for mean for Wall Street? But I think there is this lingering effect from the financial crisis where bankers were seen as you know, running rampant and doing things that ultimately hurt the little guy. Uh, in this, you know, in some cases, it was it was people who were buying homes. In this case, it's Malaysia. But either way, uh, I think there is a perception on Wall Street that they have to at least outwardly show some sort of Uh, remorse above and beyond just saying sorry. It's interesting because we saw after the financial crisis just how difficult it is to actually, you know, prosecute or hold accountable executives of a corporation. I remember uh, one of the, you know, justices in in New York wrote a long article explaining it's it's just really, really difficult in... uh, in the law world to actually have this happen. So what happened here? Did Goldman just pony up itself or, or did somebody legally make Goldman do this? Right. Well, I, 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 my understanding is that it's basically Goldman saying that, we, that, that, that we're holding our executives accountable. I mean, effectively, they are paying um, various regulators these massive billion-dollar fines 
And ultimately, what, who that hurts is it hurts the shareholders, right? Because that's less money at the company to pay out, and it's less profitability for Goldman. Um, but if you claw back some money from top executives, that actually benefits shareholders ultimately because that's money that they're, that, that they're taking back, putting back into the business rather than paying it out to uh, the likes of uh, David Solomon or, or Lloyd Blankfein. Now, given that it's Goldman paying and Goldman saying that, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to see more of this in the future, does it? No. Yeah. I mean, it basically comes down to what, what banks think is the right move. Um, and I'm going to be interested to see if this is the start of something or if it's just kind of this was such a big one-off, huge global scandal from regulators across multiple countries that Goldman felt that it was just such a it was such a stain on, on their reputation that they had to go above and beyond what, what was typical. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to think of anything that, that, that could amount to something similar to this, but we'll have to see. And just for anybody interested, I want to make clear that that article I was referring to was from U.S. District Judge Jed Rakoff of New York, and it was at the very end of 2013, and it appeared in the New York Review of Books, and the essential essay question was, why haven't the financial executives been prosecuted? And, and his point was, well, it's really just bleep hard. So, Brian, what are you working on today, and what corners of the debt markets are you looking at? Well, I'm interested in, uh, in treasuries right now. Obviously, it's a, a big potential trade ahead of the election. Um, expectations that if there is, in fact, a democratic sweep, that that would usher in a wave of fiscal stimulus and yields would go up quite significantly. Um, right now, the 10-year yield, the benchmark, is right at its 200-day moving average and is not breaking through, which is interesting uh, because it raises the question of are bond traders just skittish ahead of the election or are they maybe you know holding back on bets for uh, Democrats taking both the White House and the Senate in addition to holding the House. So, a lot of a lot of positioning ahead of the election, I think, is what a lot of mar- markets are entirely focused on right now. I was speaking with Ed Yardeni yesterday, of course, widely known on Wall Street for his bond calls. He says roughly the same thing that we could see the ten-year top one percent if that happens. But he's looking for the Federal Reserve to actually put in a yield curve control range of a half percent to three quarters of a percent. What do you make of that, Brian? Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the the feeling out there right now that that the Fed is going to cap long-end yields if they start to rise too dramatically for the wrong reasons. Um, but I do wonder to the extent that if, if basically bond traders are betting that there's going to be fiscal stimulus and it's going to get to uh, you know, lower income, unemployed people who will spend it into the economy and kind of revitalize U.S. economic growth, I'm not necessarily sure the Fed would push back on that. I'm sure they'd like to see that. Yeah, absolutely. Brian, thank you. Brian Chapata, Bloomberg Opinion debt columnist currently, but also writes on many, many things Wall Street related for Bloomberg Opinion. All right, it's time for our weekly check-in with Lauren Sauer, Johns Hopkins University Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine. Lauren, thank you so much for joining once again. Always wonderful to speak with you. I guess let's first take the temperature of where we're at. We just had a record number in once again from Italy. It seems like cases are going up all around the world. Where is it most concerning? Yeah, I think um, in the U.S., especially in rural communities and across the Midwest, it's very concerning. It is concerning in many places in Europe. Um, and we are starting to see places close down. I believe France just initiated another lockdown as well. Um, So 
So I think when you adjust for the population, the coronavirus infections in the European Union and UK are are um, have surpassed the U.S. So I think both areas are particularly concerning. Um, you know, I think as we enter into flu season, um, we have a lot to be worried about. Presumably people will be getting their flu shots all over the country. Is there anything that you would like to say to help convince people that, yes, they should? Yeah, flu shots are really important. They're always really important, but never more than this flu season. Um, We've heard a lot in the media and in scientific reports about um, the Southern Hemisphere's flu season being sort of suppressed and possibly because of the control measures of COVID. But all the more reason to make sure you go out, you get that flu shot, you protect yourself here. Um, As we enter into flu season in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, we may not see that same dampening of cases. We may see a strong flu season and you want to protect yourself both from the flu um, and reduce your likelihood of needing to be in the hospital. So you reduce your exposure to COVID-19, but also to save that space in the hospital for people with COVID-19 who may need it, um, may need the, that same you know, res- respiratory care uh, that a really bad case of the flu could, could cause. And we're seeing some states have difficulty with that at the moment in the Midwest. Yeah. My colleague Nathan Hager alerted me to this study showing that universal masking could save some 130,000 lives by the end of February. This is an analysis which appeared today, actually, in the journal Nature Medicine. Without masks, half a million people could die, according to researchers. I mean, Lauren, is there anything you can say about that? I know you may not have been involved in this particular research project, but uh, there's no reason to disbelieve it, is there? No, absolutely not. I mean, I haven't seen this particular study, but I think as we get more and more information and more and more research being conducted on the use of masks, what we're learning is that they're very effective. Um, They're a low-cost, low-risk impact, and they can have a potential to reduce a lot of spread and protect the most vulnerable communities. Because remember, you know, we like to say, my mask is for you, your mask is for me. So really what you're doing is um, putting that protection out into the community whenever you wear a mask with very little um, potential risk to yourself. We, you know, there are many scientists, myself included, who were somewhat dubious in the beginning of the pandemic about the impact that masks may have on on spread. But we have learned so much, and there's so much rigorous research conducted around their efficacy. So now is definitely the time to mask up. What does it mean to you that Remdesivir now has the FDA nod? This is the Gilead drug that President Trump used. Yeah, so um, right now I think there's a lot of conversations happening around whether or not that FDA approval was appropriate. Um, I think everyone sort of felt like the FDA emergency use authorization was appropriate. Um, There's a lot of questions around whether or not the data as a whole um, sort of indicate that that, that um, remdesivir is effective. But I think one of the takeaways for me is that that ACT study, the very first um, major drug in that ACT uh, NIH trial, included remdesivir with a placebo arm. The study was blinded, and, and that is strong evidence that remdesivir actually works. Um, it shortened the duration of symptoms uh, in people, in those requiring oxygen. So we know that for a certain subset of the population, we see in a very rigorous scientific study that remdesivir works. So I think, you know, when you think about it together with the with some of the other trials that weren't as uh, that didn't have a strength of study design, um, it makes sense to move it forward to approval. 
Um, I think overall we'll continue to gather evidence on remdesivir, particularly um, now that it will be standard of care in a lot of places. Um, but I think it I think it was the right move here. What will be next, Lauren? I mean, we've had some, some bad news about a trial being stopped the other day, but now it looks like the person who died was actually given the placebo, so it may have had nothing at all to do with the actual trial and so on. This was the Oxford AstraZeneca. Any reason to believe that we're not proceeding full speed ahead with everything that's uh, out there already? No, I mean, I think we're going to see these adverse events, and it is important to understand um, and for the companies to be forthcoming about whether or not the um, participants were in the placebo or the study drug arm or vaccine arm. Um, the evidence right now is being gathered, right? So so we can't make decisions on the safety or the efficacy from these single events, um, and there are entire data safety monitoring boards put in place to do these interim analyses to assess whether stopping is appropriate, to look at these adverse events and make sure that the study can continue or not, depending on what that they find. And so we have to trust that process. Now, mm. I think we will see that as more and more evidence is yeah. gathered, um, that they'll make decisions on it. But for right now, seeing these events happen is what we want to see the process working. Lauren, thank you as always. Our weekly check-in with Lauren Sauer, Johns Hopkins University Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine. Very, very grateful. It's a fantastic interactive article slash old platform read, if you like. The author is David Yaffe Bellany and it's on the big legal threats Trump will face if he loses the election. It's out today and you really need to read this. David joins us now. David, thank you for joining. Pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. So there's a list in in this of, you know, the types of things that President Trump could face, including, let's begin at the beginning, possible criminal charges for obstruction of justice, campaign finance violations, federal tax charges, New York state tax charges. I mean, it doesn't end. Yeah, I think that the the issues that, that most people are familiar with from the, you know, roughly year and a half we spent talking about Robert Mueller's investigation into the president's contacts with Russia are these possible obstruction of justice charges. Um, the the actions that might lead to those types of, of charges were laid out pretty clearly in, in the Mueller report. Um, and as president, Trump was immune from any actual criminal prosecution stemming from that. It's a longstanding Justice Department policy not to charge the president with a criminal offense. But when he leaves office, he becomes potentially vulnerable to, to, to those charges. Presumably, there are teams of people and all sorts of law firms and projects and you know, especially formed groups ready to do just that. Give us a, a list or a lineup of the types of people we might see doing it. So to some extent, it will depend on who uh, President Joe Biden puts in his Justice Department. Um, The attorney general, the new attorney general, would be certainly largely responsible for making the decision about whether to pursue federal criminal charges against the president. I mean, and that's something that Biden himself would certainly weigh in on as well. And there are you know, major reasons to think that a Biden administration might not want to do that, even if they have the, the evidence and the ability to do it, just because it would be uh, such a, a major political event um, that would continue to divide the country at a time when one suspects the next president would want to unify the country. Um, but other other key figures outside the federal government, Cy Vance is the district attorney in Manhattan who 
has been investigating Trump's finances, his tax practices for a couple of years now. Of course, he went to the Supreme Court in an effort to to force Trump to turn over his tax returns, won that battle, um, is sort of continuing to fight it in the lower courts, but is expected at some point soon to get a hold of Trump's taxes, and that will factor into the state-level investigation that Cy Vance in in New York is doing. Um, Letitia James, who's the attorney general of the state of New York, is doing a separate civil investigation into Trump's real estate practices. Um, Because it's a civil inquiry that wouldn't involve criminal charges, the penalties would be economic if she, you know, found something as part of that investigation. There's some people have, have speculated that, you know, it could turn into a, a criminal inquiry if if she turns up something that, that warrants it. So those are some of the, the key figures who will be involved in, in these types of decisions if Trump loses. And is there any reason to suggest that some of these people might team up or will they all want to go their own separate way? So these are all separate jurisdictions, but there's I mean, these people will certainly all be communicating. Um, the uh, a Biden Justice Department would, I'm sure, get on the phone with Cy Vance in New York and find out what he's looking at, whether there are leads they can share, you know, whether their investigations are overlapping in various ways. I'm sure there'd be a similar level of communication between Letitia James and Cy Vance. So, yes, I mean, these, these investigations or potential prosecutions, you know, you know, could continue along separate paths, but I, I certainly imagine there'll be communication among the decision makers. What about private people taking cases against the president? Will that happen? Yeah, I mean that's that's already been happening. One of the one of the cases that we looked at um, is a group of an anonymous group of investors who are basically arguing that Trump encouraged them to invest in a multi-tier marketing scheme that eventually went bust, and they lost a lot of money and are sort of blaming blaming Trump and, and a few of his children for that. So that's the that's an example of a, of a type of lawsuit that we might continue to see or maybe see see more of. Obviously, it's possible to to bring those lawsuits even when he's still president. Um, but when he's no longer president, he loses all sorts of legal arguments that allow him to drag these things out or to avoid handing over evidence or sitting on deposition or testifying at a potential trial trial down the line. So the obstacles that would face people, you know, hoping to bring those sorts of lawsuits would sort of begin to dissipate. You also, in your article, talk about where things stand and what happens if if President Trump, who by then may or may not still be president, loses these different suits. So one of them is Summary Services defamation suit, the E. Jean Carroll defamation suit, the Mary Trump fraud suit. And then there's also the multi-level marketing fraud suit. So the the president could be locked up in in these suits for decades to come. I mean, right? Yeah, well, I mean, with these with these existing suits, I don't know about a decade, but, you know, certainly years. And then if more litigation emerges, then obviously that could, you know, stretch on and on. I mean, I think the, the, one of the main threats that he faces in the in the two defamation suits is that, you know, in, in the Eugene Carroll case, the Justice Department is attempting to substitute for him as the defendant in the case, which would essentially cause the case to, to disappear because you can't actually sue the government for for defamation you know if, if he if he loses the election then you know it's unlikely the justice department would continue kind of fighting for him in that way so he loses he loses that defense and then in the in the summer service case his big argument has been that the president is immune from state level civil suits and obviously if he's no longer president then that doesn't apply anymore so in both those cases you know relatively soon he could be in a position where 
he has to give DNA evidence, he has to sit for a deposition. Um, you know, that's not the same as going to jail, but um, it's embarrassing and it could lead to, to revelations that could be harmful to him or to financial penalties down the line. Briefly, will there be, I mean, there will be obviously, you know, any amount of groups that are ready to back the the president, but if he's not president anymore, will they be as likely to? Yeah, you know, I mean, he'll lose the resources of the Justice Department because he'll no longer be the head of the executive branch. Um, but he'll still be able to hire expensive law firms to represent him in all these cases. Um, you know, in some of these cases, he's already being represented by his private lawyers. You know, nothing about those relationships would change if he loses. But he loses legal arguments. You know, I'm the president, therefore I don't have time to deal with this litigation. I'm the president. I'm immune to this kind of investigation. He loses all that and he loses the resources of the Justice Department. So those are those are major blows, even if they don't mean that he'll be, you know, out out, out in the cold on his own, um, you know, on, on January, yet by the end of January. To quote the opening line of your article, President Trump has more at stake in this election than whether he remains in the White House. Our thanks to David Yaffe Bellany, who has this story out on the Bloomberg uh, today. It's, it's essentially that the big legal threats Trump will face if he loses the election. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.